I had to write a paper recently for a Disciples of Christ, which is our denomination, polity class that I had to take in order to get ordained. And I kind of cheated and interviewed my parents who are here today, who are both uh, retired ordained disciples pastors. And something that my dad said stuck with me. He said, in the beginning, after my mom had already been ordained into this denomination, he could not bring himself to switch over because he couldn't understand why these people had to take communion every single week. He was a Baptist and he could not wrap his mind around why we had to come to the table and take the Lord's Supper. What was up with these people and their obsession? But he said it all changed when he finally had this aha moment with God where God said something like, don't you get it, Steve? I decide who is invited to this table and I've decided it's for absolutely everyone and that changes everything. I think for the first time in his life, he had this image of the table of Christ where no one was denied access. No one was the keeper of who was in and who was out. No one could be uninvited because Jesus invited all. There was no separation, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Republican nor Democrat, rich nor poor, alcoholic nor sober, CEO nor unemployed, people without housing nor people with housing. The list goes on. The Apostle Paul said, no, we are all one with one another through Christ. So on this World Communion Sunday, we celebrate with people all around the world who profess the name of Jesus. Though we may not share the same language or be on the same soil, we share the same Savior. And through Jesus, we are unified as one. And we celebrate that today. In today's passage, Luke 15 is actually about a celebration eventually. So hang in there with me until we get to the celebration part. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son can all be found in Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, just keep it open. I want to start by telling you just a little bit about Luke because I kind of have a secret crush on him. Um, he is the only gospel writer to include the prodigal son story, as well as the good Samaritan, the Pharisee and the publican, the rich man and Lazarus. These are all parables that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. He's the only Gospel writer whose scholars believe was a Gentile. He was classically trained. He was well-researched. He was thoroughly Greek. And he was a passionate intellect who likely penned more than 25% of our New Testament when he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He's a physician, a doctor, who writes like a historian, and he gives us some of the most intimate details that we find in the New Testament just look at the birth stories. He gives us four pages of birth stories as opposed to Matthew and Mark who give us just little blips. And so I have to think he had a woman in his life who was like, give me more details, please. <laughs> He's a pragmatist with heart who knows that what we believe to be true changes us. When you believe something is true, it reorients your heart. And in the case of following Jesus, it reorients your heart to a different kingdom where lost sons are celebrated and lost coins are searched for and lost sheep will be relentlessly pursued because that sheep matters to the wholeness of the kingdom. I believe the parables in Luke chapter 15 point to at least three things that we can know about the character and the kingdom of God. And as we go through this passage today, these stories, I hope that you will think to yourself where you fit into the story. Perhaps you have lost something that you're looking for. 
Perhaps you are lost. Perhaps you're part of something that's not whole and, and you're waiting for it to be made complete. As Jay taught last month on this passage, these string, uh, these, the string of parables was told in response to the religious leaders. And they probably could not conceive of a World Communion Sunday where the table was large enough for everyone, especially not sinners, especially not women, or anyone who was ill or unclean or poor or a Samaritan or a Gentile or a slave. The original audience who heard these stories would have understood life through an early Christian century viewpoint. They were in a society where there were clear demarcations. In Roman society, in Jewish culture, the nuclear family, that determined a person's status and their position. These people knew their place and they stayed in it. The idea that all people belonged and could share the same table would have been viewed as religiously heretical and socially dangerous. It was a radical notion that was highly countercultural to the first century. So one of the most obvious things I think that we can take from this passage points to a God who places the same value and worth on every person. And let's be honest, I've struggled to do that this week just with my own children. I'm like, which one is being nice to me today? Okay, I like you the best. You, you are my favorite. But these parables point to a God who literally does not have favorites, and we don't know what to do with that in our heads, and they didn't either. A God who could believe that even the black sheep of the family was worth finding and saving was something they'd never heard of. So in Luke 15, Jesus paints a picture of a Savior who earnestly seeks and holds space for those who are not at the table. The sheep that have been left behind, the son who is estranged, the tiny object too small to hold out hope for. Years ago, I had the embarrassing audacity to send one of my favorite authors, Robert Benson, a copy of my new album and book and told him in this letter that his book, In Between the Dreaming and Coming True, had shaped what I had written and I wanted him to have a copy of it. And several weeks later, I got a voicemail that said, hello, Jenny, this is Robert Benson. Donovan, you know his voice. And I'd like to have coffee with you. And I totally geeked out and was completely starstruck and met him at Portland Brew and was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to find all the tricks of the trade on how to write good books. I was just so over my head. And he asked me at one point in the conversation, who's your audience? And I remember, bursting into tears like some crazy woman that needed a therapist. I was in a real hard spot because I told him, I don't know who my audience is anymore. The faith that I grew up with, the faith that I was handed, I don't believe that anymore. I've, I've changed, I've grown, I've spread out in different ways. But the people that I write music for and books for and speak to at conferences, they still believe that way. Everything I do is, is for that group of people, but I don't feel like I belong there yet. And I knew he was an Episcopalian, and I told him, I think I'm somewhere between, I think I'm supposed to be an Episcopalian, and all I speak is evangelicalese. He looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, wonderful. And then he looked down at his sketch pad, and he starts drawing a picture of a really long table. He doesn't say a word. He just draws this picture of a table. And finally, he looks up, and he points to one end of the table and he circles it. And he says, they need someone who speak their language to whisper in their ears and remind them that the table is much bigger than they can imagine. 
that was it. We didn't talk about book writing or anything else. I went to that coffee shop for that moment to hear that we have a table that's bigger than we can imagine. The passage says, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one and bring it back to the table? The first thing that we can know about God from these parables is that God is relentlessly pursuing the sinner, the left behind, the estranged, the outcast, the thief, the lost, because the table is simply bigger than you or I can imagine. The next thing that we can learn about God's character from this passage is that God is comfortable with lostness. I know lostness is not a word. My editor told me that multiple times when I was writing my last book and that's, I said, that's okay, I'm going to keep it in there no matter how many times it turns it red and tells me to spell check it, lostness. We all have it, it's a part of life this side of heaven. Sometimes we experience loss through no fault of our own death, illness, loss of job, loss of income, natural disasters. There are some losses that come with such finality that we can know with complete certainty they are gone. I'm sure people all throughout Florida are feeling that certainty of finality today as they grapple with completely losing everything they own. So in the midst of those types of losses, God promises to walk with us and be with us and comfort us to be the good shepherd. But sometimes things are lost and we don't yet know the ending. These parables speak to that kind of lostness. It seems irrational that one might find a lost sheep in the vast wilderness or a small coin in the midst of a bustling home or a child who's written you off and disappeared. But in these parables, we see the miracle of audacious hope in the character of God. We're asked to suspend judgment and logic and despair and hold out hope instead. The Episcopalian priest, Reverend John Claypool, recounts a story in his book, The Hopeful Heart, of being completely discouraged after participating in one of the town's reconciliation attempts. He was working alongside a Jewish rabbi, and after the meeting was over, he said, this is completely hopeless, and we should use our energy somewhere else. This is never going to happen. The rabbi, a Holocaust survivor, replied this way, I need to tell you something, young man. To the Jew, there is only one unforgivable sin, and that is the sin of despair. Humanly speaking, despair is presumptuous. It is saying something about the future that we have no right to say because we have not been there yet and we don't know enough. Think of the times you've been surprised in the past as you looked at a certain situation and deemed it hopeless. Then lo and behold, forces that you did not even realize existed and broke in and changed everything. We do not know enough to embrace the absolutism of despair and theologically speaking, it's heretical. If God can create the things that are from the things that are not, and even make the dead things come back to life, who are we to set limits on what kind of potency that may yet have? What a statement. It may feel like a risky proposition for you or for me to hold out hope for someone that feels utterly lost. It costs us. It costs us our heart to hold out hope for somebody that we are estranged from, 
for somebody that we don't know will ever become sober, ever come home, ever get out of addiction. But perhaps part of the heart of this parable is to remind us today of a father who refused to give in to despair and sat on his porch and waited day after day for his son to come home. A final word on God's character in the midst of lostness. It may seem obvious, but I'm grateful that Jesus speaks into missing things with grace. These parables are not predicated on Jesus' shock or disappointment. There is no additional shame heaped upon the prodigal son. There is only a retelling of the choices he made. Jesus doesn't say in these parables, there was a lazy housewife who lost her coins again or her keys again. There was a gambling addict who did what addicts do and fell off the wagon again and ended up in the wilderness. There was a greedy stock trader who got what was coming to him and squandered his family's money. That's not what these parables say because these parables are not about shaming the thing that is lost. There are losses in life for which we carry deep shame, whether it's rational, whether we deserve it, whether it's real or not an estranged child, a broken marriage, a lost job, a dying friendship, even a lost pregnancy, losing our family's money, tarnishing the name of those we love with our actions. So many things happen in our lives that we give ourselves shame for and we pile it on over and over. The good gift of guilt can lead us to repentance and growth when, when and where that's needed. But this shame that we heap upon ourselves we must remember God refuses to acknowledge. He does not write shame into this story. There is only extravagant compassion and mercy. And maybe some of you are here today and you are experiencing a loss and you have heaped the shame on yourself over and over and over again. And you need to hear the story anew that while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Compassion. And he ran to him and he embraced him. When our losses are draped in shame, we lose the ability to be vulnerable. Shame keeps a prodigal son from ever coming home. Shame leaves a woman who's lost something valuable searching for it alone. Shame makes a lost sheep unwilling to come back to the flock and face the 99 who didn't screw up. But grace calls us back. Grace waits on the front porch and grace lights a lamp and stays up all night searching and grace goes into the wilderness to find the one who's gotten lost. The beauty of these three parables for the lost ones is this. Shame leaves us isolated and alone, but grace leads us home. Luke 15 reminds us, these parables remind us that loss is inevitable. We'll face it. Shame is detrimental, but hope is inexhaustible. The second thing that we can know about God's character from these parables is that God's love is inexhaustible. And because of this, God holds out hope on our behalf in the midst of our lostness. And because of this, we are called to hold out hope too for the people around us. Inexhaustible hope. Finally, as I sat with this passage for the last week, I couldn't help but notice the climax of all three of these parables. They're exactly the same. 
in the first one, when he finds a sheep, it says he calls together his friends and neighbors and he says, rejoice for me, for I have found. And then she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I have found. And then the father says, quickly, let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they begin to celebrate together. So here's the beauty of these passages, these parables, and the beauty of community is that when we walk with one another through our lostness and through our suffering, we also get to walk with one another into the rejoicing and the celebration when all things are made new and made whole. If you've suffered, then you know what it's like to get to the other side, and you know that the sweetness of that celebration is made more intense and more beautiful because you came from lostness. Just this week, I sat with one of my good friends on her back porch of a house that's been elevated six, seven feet up in the air. And the porch now sits almost like in a tree with all the beautiful fall leaves coming down. And my friends and I sat on this porch and had tea and we cried and we laughed and we cried and we laughed because a year and a half ago, a flood hit South Nashville out of nowhere and her house took on three, four feet of water, and she barely escaped with her two little boys as the water was rising in her house. A man across the street died as he waited for help to be saved. He was clinging to a tree. Her family and so many families lost everything. And there we sat in this new house with this new patio up in this little adult tree house is what we call it. And we rejoiced over what had been restored. Because we had also been at that house when we mucked out water and when we went through toys that were destroyed and when we sat there and took pictures of wedding pictures that were sopped in water that there were no copies of. She's Canadian and um, she said that it was the first time in her life that she needed help. She needed somebody to walk her through it. She says, Canadians are stoic and private. But stoic and private doesn't always lead to, we need help. There's no flood insurance. We need food on the table. I need somebody to walk with me through this. One of God's kindest gifts to us is the gift of celebration in community when lost things are found. We are called to invite one another into our stories, messy as they may be. Jesus was a brilliant storyteller, and I think he knew what he was doing when he placed each of these lost items alongside something else. The parable does not say a single sheep went missing, or a single coin went missing, or a single person went missing. It says that a son was missing who had a brother, who had a father. It says a coin was missing that made something complete and valuable in a set. It says that a sheep was missing who was a part of something else, who was a part of a, a flock that was incomplete without the sheep. Jesus sets these things inside of a group, inside of a community for a reason. Dr. A.J. Levine, a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt says that these parables are just as much about counting 
as anything else because each of these things belonged to something bigger than itself. They were important to the wholeness of a herd, the wholeness of a sum, the wholeness of a family. What we see in the string of parables is a God who counts, a God who refuses to call a thing whole when it is missing a piece, a God who refuses to say one brother is enough, 99 sheep are enough, nine coins will suffice, a God who holds out inexhaustible hope for the whole to be brought back together. So what does that mean for us today? That means that we have to think of things differently as a whole. It means we can't only think of America and our own best interest because all countries in the world matter. It means we can't think only of our own children and their elite education because the education of all children matters. It means we can't only think of our own church's bottom line because the health of all churches in this area and around the world matters. It means that we can't dismiss people who are like us, who aren't like us, because all people matter. This is the heart of World Communion Sunday, to remember that we are a part of a bigger whole. And we have a responsibility to bring that whole together. It's given to us to bring peace. We don't get to siphon off the kingdom of God. So we have to ask ourselves today in light of these passages how we live differently. What do we do? What do you do this week to respond to the text in your life? How does this shape who you pray for? How does this shape who you hold out inexhaustible hope for? Who do you need to invite to the table? What do you need to do to remember that it's longer than you can imagine? Who do we need to celebrate and rejoice with because the thing that was lost has been found? This, this passage asks us to consider those things as we move through our week. These parables are meant to lead us to the conclusion that God is deeply invested in making sure all have been accounted for and brought back into the wholeness of community. And then to gather together and to rejoice with one another. So we look for one another and we walk with one another and we carry one another and we allow ourselves to become vulnerable with one another and we hold out inexhaustible hope for one another because this is the way of the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? God, may we know your inexhaustible love that sets a bigger table than we can imagine. May we know your inexhaustible love that refuses to shame us in our mistakes and our lostness, but patiently seeks us out and leads us home. May we know your inexhaustible love when we have lost something forever. Be tender with us as you bring beauty from ashes. And may we know your inexhaustible love as we seek wholeness in our communities and our families in this church and our friendships, that we might weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Amen. <laughs>